Hello and welcome to the Sisters Sunday School class at Anchor Bible Church in Hull, Georgia. My name is Sharon Black. I'm the pastor's wife. I have been leading the ladies Sunday School class in a study on Christianity versus world religions. Um, This is the very last podcast in the series. We first looked at what is Christianity? What do you have to believe to be a Christian? And what must you believe if you don't believe these things? You cannot possibly be a Christian. We looked at that first. And then we looked at the five other major worldviews in the world today and what those belief systems look like so that we could understand ideally and most importantly understand what other people believe and how to share Jesus Christ with them in their lost condition and win them to come to know Jesus as their Savior. In the process of that study um, there were many questions in the class. Uh, We started talking about well how do cults fit into this and how do denominations fit into this and so um, A last couple of podcasts, we talked about cults and what they believe and how they fit. And then last time we talked about denominations. If you are a Christian and you do believe that Jesus has died for your sins and what's the big deal with all the different denominations, Methodist and Presbyterian and Baptist and Catholic and Charismatic, how does that all fit and why do we have so many differences? So last time we talked a little bit about church history and where all these denominations came from in the first place. And today for this last session in the series, I want to talk about what specifically are the big differences among the Christian denominations, those who believe in Jesus, who follow his word, um, all these different, you know, Presbyterian and Methodist and all of those. Why, um, why are we different? What makes us different? And what are the big differences? So if you look at each statement of faith, go to the different websites, different denominational websites, etc., read some books. If you read through the statements of faith of all these different Christian denominations, you can distill the differences down into five major categories. And here they are. If you're taking notes, you may want to write these down. I'm going to be giving you scripture references for all of these um, and talking about them in a little bit more detail in just a moment. But the five big differences among the Christian denominations are these. First of all, what is baptism? What's the purpose of baptism? What are the effects of baptism? What is the method of baptism? Baptism is one of the big five differences. The second one is the work of the Holy Spirit. What does that look like? Who is the Holy Spirit and how does he, how does he manifest it in the church and in a, the life of a believer? So the work of the Holy Spirit is the second big difference among denominations. The third thing is the security of the believer. Once we become a Christian, once we have trusted Christ to save us from our sins, are we always saved or can we lose our salvation? Um, That is a big issue and a big difference among uh, a number of the denominations. So baptism, the purpose, the effects, the method, the work of the Holy Spirit is the second one. The third one, the security of the believer. The fourth one is church government. How should the church be organized? How is it structured? The organizational structure among the different denominations is very different. 
Um, and then fifth and last are forms of worship. A fancy word for that is liturgy. Um, among the different Christian denominations, the way we worship is different and the um, forms of worship. So these are the five things I'm going to look at today in this podcast is those five big differences and what specifically is different about that among the different denominations. So I created a little chart for myself. If you are a member of Anchor Bible Church and you're listening to this and you would like this um little PowerPoint slideshow that I used in Sunday school, I actually created a chart that shows all of this in a, in a good visual if you'd like a copy of it or if you just like the slideshow, I'll send it to you. Um, so I'm going to start with baptism. And we're going to look at how Baptists view baptism and then Methodists, Pentecostals, Charismatics, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Anglican slash Episcopal and Roman Catholic. Let's look at baptism. And then when I finish just kind of going over the the differences, I'm going to give you a bunch of scripture references to look up for yourself. So baptism. Um, again, Anchor Bible Church is not uh, is a non-denominational, it's an independent Bible church. But most of these, as I go through them, we line up more with the um, Baptist statement of faith than we do with with most of these others. So I may slip occasionally and say we, and I don't necessarily mean that our church is Baptist, but our, our doctrine is probably more Baptist than, than not. So Baptists believe that baptism does not save you. It is an outward sign of what has already happened in your heart. We do not believe in baptizing babies. We do not believe um, that that has any effect on the baby and so we don't do it um, we believe that it's something that that a believer does when they have by an act of their will have trusted christ as their savior and when that happens baptism is to be done by immersion um, because and i'll give you the scripture for this later but scripture teaches that baptism symbolically represents the death burial and resurrection of jesus christ it says we're buried with him in baptism raised to walk in newness of life and so sprinkling doesn't have that symbolism and um, pouring over one's head doesn't have that symbolism immersion is being buried with him in baptism being raised to walk in newness of life like the resurrection of Christ. So that is why uh, Baptists believe in baptism by immersion. But we do not believe, Baptists do not believe that it saves you. Now, um, Methodists believe in baptism upon conversion also. They sprinkle. I'm not sure why, and I would have to research that more deeply, but for some reason they do not immerse, they sprinkle. And they do um, sprinkle babies as part of a covenant. The best I can explain it, kind of like in the Old Testament, when Jews took their babies on the eighth day, their baby boys, to be circumcised by the priest at the synagogue. Um, it didn't symbolize anything other than that the baby was Jewish and was under that Jewish covenant that God had made with Abraham. And in a sort of similar way, the sprinkling of babies, Methodists don't believe that baptism saves babies. Um, but it does symbolize that the baby is covered 
sort of by the faith of the parents until such time as the baby can make a decision for himself or herself. Um, and maybe if you're if you're a Methodist and you're hearing this, you may have something to add or something to disagree with. Um, I was a member of a Methodist church for almost 10 years and, and I watched a lot of um, baby baptisms and had some conversations with our pastors about it, but um, that's kind of the best way I can explain it in a, in a short form. As far as um, Pentecostals and Charismatics, similar to what the Baptists believe, that baptism is an outward sign only of something that's already happened in your heart. It's like a public profession of faith or a public testimony or publicly identifying yourself as a Christian. Um, Presbyterians believe um, that you should be baptized upon conversion by sprinkling and that babies are sprinkled as part of a covenant type of belief also. So Methodists and Presbyterians essentially also do not believe that baptism saves you in any way, but they do baptize babies as a symbolic uh, idea of the baby being covered by the parent's faith until the baby can come to know Christ for himself or herself. Um, now, Lutherans, Anglicans, Episcopalians, and Roman Catholics all believe that baptiz baptism saves you, that you have to be baptized to be saved. Um, and Lutherans and uh, Roman Catholics believe that it is part of the other sacraments. It's part of seven things you have to do to be saved. Now, that brings up an interesting problem when we talk about these different denominations not believing anything within a denominational group that violates the foundational doctrines of Christianity technically this does because it takes the focus off of what Christ did on the cross for us he saved us from our sins and it puts salvation back on man and a list of works that he has to do to be saved which would then um, cause us to question whether or not that violates one of the foundational doctrines of Christianity. So the Lutherans, Anglicans, Episcopalians, and Roman Catholics believe that baptism saves you. If you are speaking to someone from one of those denominations, one of those faith backgrounds, and this comes up, a good... Um, I hate to use the word argument because I'm not teaching any of this for us to become argumentative people, but a good argument against the idea that baptism saves you would be the thief on the cross. When Jesus was being crucified between two thieves, the one on the right, the one on the left, and the one said, um, you know, I, I believe you. And he said, today you will be with me in paradise. And I've, I've used this many times in conversations. Did that man like climb off the cross and go get baptized? Did he climb off the cross and go do a bunch of good works? No, he was being crucified and he died a few minutes or a few hours later. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He didn't have time to do any of those works. He was saved because of his faith in Christ only. And that's a great example to use when people want to say, oh, but you have to take communion and you have to have, you have to be baptized and you have to do this and you have to do that. Well, the guy on the cross, he didn't have time to do any of that. And Jesus said he was going to be in heaven. And who are we to argue with Jesus? So that's a good example um, for those who believe that baptism saves. The guy on the cross, he was not baptized. All right, let's go on to the second thing, which is the security of the believer. Now, 
this is one of those things that is really um, it can be very detrimental to someone who doesn't understand. There are a number of denominations that um, this is an issue and it, it can cause people to doubt their salvation. It can cause people to um, leave the faith entirely. It's not the only thing, but it's one of this is one of the big sticking points in some of the denominations. Um, so the security of the believer, whether or not once you are saved, you are always saved. Um, among Baptists, they believe that, yes, once you have trusted Christ as your Savior, you cannot choose to become unsaved. Only God knows if someone was saved to begin with um, when someone leaves the faith. And we've had a lot of that happening in recent years. We've had some fairly well-known Christian authors and musicians and people who have completely turned their back on Christ and have renounced Christianity. So only our Father in Heaven knows if those people were saved in the first place. And if so, you know, something like that, that's one of those times where you look at, at other scriptures that say, for this cause, some among you are asleep. In other words, God can end your life early um, because you're being a bad testimony for, for His sake. Um, only He knows the answer to that, whether those people were saved to begin with or not. Um, so. Baptists believe that once you are saved, you are always saved. It is true that only God knows if you were truly saved or if you had some kind of emotional experience or if you um, were going through the motions or whatever. Methodists believe that Christians can lose their salvation. Now, you would have to dig more deeply into the Methodist Statement of Faith. I have a copy of it here on my shelf, um, but for the po purposes of this podcast, it is in the Methodist Statement of Faith. Whether or not it's overtly taught um, and in your face at a Methodist church, maybe not. The, the one I attended, this was never spoken from the pulpit. However, it was in the Statement of Faith that I was given when I became a member there. Um, because the Pentecostals and the Charismatics came out of the Methodist Church um, and formed their own denomination, they also carried that belief with them. So Pentecostals and Charismatics do believe that Christians can lose their salvation. And again, you would have to sit with a, a person from that denomination and examine their statement of faith to understand why they believe this from Scripture. But um, Methodists, Pentecostals, Charismatics do believe that Christians can lose their salvation. And now we get to the Presbyterians. The Presbyterians believe that salvation only applies to the elect. That's Calvinism. Um, those who are Calvinists would also call themselves Reformed. It's called Reformed Theology. came out of the Reformation. But um, Calvinists believe that only the elect can be saved. So if you are elect, you are secure. But how can you know whether or not you were elect? Maybe you just thought you were elect. Um, that's a really sticky doctrine. It gets very deep. It gets very confusing. Um, there were a number of years where I attended a church that was um, Calvinist in nature, and I, I was pretty solid in my faith, and there was a reason that I was at that church at that particular time, um, but I watched believers around me struggling with their faith because of this issue. Well, what if I'm not elect? Well, what if God didn't really pick me? What if I just think I'm elect? 
And then what's the purpose of missions? If you're elect and you're going to be saved anyway, why bother sharing your faith with anyone? Um, those types of questions I, I heard discussed. So that um, has traditionally been a Presbyterian doctrine. However, it has um, had a huge impact on Baptist churches. And there are a number of Baptist churches, even in just my little circle of life that I've lived, I have watched them just be pulled apart and and split over the issue of the security of the believer because this doctrine of Calvinism, this Reformed theology, um, infiltrated into the Baptist church. Um, so that's something... Uh, that you would want to read about and dig into for yourself, but that is a powerfully divisive doctrine. Um, the next would be Lutherans. Um, Lutherans believe that Christians can lose their salvation through a lapse of faith or a grave sin or persistence in sin. For example, if you choose to, con to continue living in some sin that Scripture has been very clear this is sin and you don't want to give it up and you continue to live this way, Lutherans believe that you can lose your salvation. Um, Anglicans, Episcopalians, it completely depends on which branch of these different denominations within the Anglican or Episcopalian church. So you would have to actually look into a specific church or group of churches to see where they stand on the issue of the security of the believer. As I looked up different ones, I found all different answers to that question. So apparently they don't all agree on that issue. Um, the Roman Catholic Church, for the security of the believer, they believe that one is saved by membership in the Catholic Church and by keeping the seven sacraments. So once again, this brings up the issue of, is this in alignment with the fundamental doctrines of Christianity that we've talked about in other podcasts. We are not saved by works. There is nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. Christianity is unique in that it is the only belief system in which God did all the work and reached out to man. All other cults, and belief systems are man trying to get to his version of God by doing a list of works or accomplishing certain feats. So we have to tread really lightly here. The Roman Catholic Church believes that you are saved through membership in the Catholic Church and keeping the seven sacraments. I'm going to let that sit for a minute and going <laughs> to move ahead to these other three things. So the, the issue of baptism is one of the areas where the denominations differ pretty significantly. The security of the believer is another area where the denominations differ significantly. Um, and it is to be noted that the Baptist denomination is the only one that believes that once you're saved, you're always saved and that you cannot become unsaved. Um, and I would say that Anchor Bible Church is there as far as that belief goes. The third area of difference among all of the denominations is the work of the Holy Spirit. Now this one's kind of tricky as well because the statement of faith is one thing, but the way it plays out in that denomination or in individual churches within that denomination may be different. So I'll start again with the Baptist denomination. Baptists believe that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, indwells, gifts, and seals us 
at the moment of conversion. That's a really important part. At the moment of conversion, the moment we trust Christ as our Savior, we are given the Holy Spirit. The Methodists believe that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a second work of grace, that it does not happen upon conversion, that there is a, a place that you reach in your faith where God sends his Holy Spirit on you as a second work. They call it a second work of grace. And because Pentecostals and Charismatics came out of, originally, out of the Methodist Church in the 1920s, they also believe that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a second work of grace, that it does not happen upon conversion. Um, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Episcopalians, Anglicans, and Roman Catholics have similar beliefs to the Baptists. Um, in their statements of faith for Presbyterian, Lutheran, Anglican, Episcopalian, Roman Catholic, it says that the Holy Spirit indwells believers at conversion. Um, I put this note to myself. The Lutheran belief is, is in their statement of faith, and I put it's on paper, but somewhat ignored in practice. It depends on the branch of the Lutheran church. Um, for Anglicans and Episcopalians, same thing. It's similar to Baptist ideas of the Holy Spirit on paper, but you don't see much mention um, it's ignored in practice in those denominations. Roman Catholics, same thing. On paper, it says that the Holy Spirit indwells you at conversion, but again, it's somewhat ignored in practice. However, very interesting development. There is now a branch of the Roman Catholic Church called Charismatic Catholic. And I have a very dear friend, um, a colleague I used to work with, who um, was Baptist growing up, but she married a, a Catholic man, and they attended a charismatic Catholic church. And we had some really intense conversations about, well, you know, what do you do about praying to Mary? And what do you do about, you know, confessing your sins to a priest and things like that? And she assured me that those things were not emphasized in that particular branch of the Catholic Church. So I thought that was very interesting. So there was a greater emphasis on worship and um, the work of the Holy Spirit in one's individual life as a Christian in that particular branch of the Catholic Church. I thought that was somewhat interesting. So we've looked at baptism among the denominations. We've looked at the security of the believer. We've looked at the work of the Holy Spirit, which except for Methodists and Pentecostals, um, most of the denominations do believe the Holy Spirit indwells you at conversion. So now let's look at these last two. And in my opinion, they're less important maybe than the other three. But the next one would be the organizational structure of the church. So. In the Baptist denomination, the various Baptist denominations for the purpose of keeping standard doctrine and for pooling funds for missions, um, they have organized into a, um, I hate to use the word corporate, but for lack of better, like a, like a corporate denomination together. Um, among different groups of Baptist churches. I mentioned that in our last podcast, mainly for financial reasons for, for funding missionaries, but also for keeping the doctrine more standard. 
Um, however, the Baptist denomination very strongly values the autonomy of the local church the, and um, they're led by pastors and deacons. When we look at the organizational structure of a Baptist church, there's a pastor and then there's a, a body of deacons um, that lead and make decisions. The Methodist church is structured globally like the Roman Catholic church. So the local church and the local ministers have less authority or autonomy. Um, and again, depending on which particular branch of Methodism, there's quite a, there are several different denominations. Um, Pentecostals and Charismatics, there is a United Pentecostal Church International. They have an annual conference. However, they're not strongly organized and they mainly have pastors, elders, and deacons in um, the United Pentecostal Church. Um, the Presbyterian Church is structured with a hierarchy. They have session and presbytery and synod and general assembly. Um, so they, they do have a structure, an organizational structure beyond the local church. Um, and then within the local church, they have pastors and elders. Um, elders functioning similarly to what we would know as deacons in a, in a Baptist setting. Um, the Lutheran Church has no required national or international hierarchy of any kind, but they have um, a couple of Lutheran organizations, the ECLA and the CLC, that are structured similar to the Presbyterians. Um, Anglican and Episcopalian, I mentioned this in um, the last podcast, but they are structured very similarly to the Roman Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholic Church believes that the Pope is the earthly head of the church, that he is God's voice on earth, and his words are given equal weight with scripture. Um, that is another issue that needs to be dealt with when we talk about whether or not um, denominations, you can only be a denomination, use that term, if your foundational beliefs do not um, digress from the foundational beliefs of Christianity and and that one would because scripture teaches very clearly that we should not add or take away from God's word which means that the Pope's words he's just a human being and his words are not equal with scripture so we have several issues um, doctrinally uh, of difference that would cause us to question whether or not we should classify the Roman Catholic Church under the umbrella of of traditional Christianity when you look at, at these beliefs. There's a very detailed international hierarchy as far as the organizational structure, um, but the idea of the Pope's words being equal to Scripture is problematic. Um, the very last thing we're going to look at is forms of worship and liturgy. In the Baptist denomination, there is a typical order of worship, like a bulletin that says, you know, when we're going to sing and when the preaching happens. But the style of music and other forms are the preference of the individual congregation. There's no published liturgy. In other words, there's not some sort of national or international booklet that comes out that says we're all going to read this scripture on this day or all the preachers are going to preach a sermon about this on this particular date, etc., which is the case in some of the other denominations. So, um, a lot of this is um, up to the local Baptist church, 
But in the Baptist denomination, in worship, there is no exercise of what would be referred to as the sign gifts. In other words, speaking in tongues, those types of um, dancing in the spirit, things like that, um, those are not acceptable or allowed in uh, the corporate worship in a Baptist church. Um, the Methodist church, there is a common liturgy for some things like the church calendar year. There are certain ceremonies, certain expressions that are used in, this, in the church service that all Methodists know. Um, but it's not as structured as perhaps some of the other, like as the Catholic church would be. Um, Pentecostals and Charismatics branched from Methodism mainly because they wanted to exercise the sign gifts in worship. Um, they believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a separate work, and they believe in exercising sign gifts such as speaking in tongues in the worship service. So it was one of the reasons that they formed that denomination in the 1920s in California, was so that they could exercise those gifts during worship. Um, Presbyterians have a liturgy that is provided, but it's optional. Um, one of the big things in the Presbyterian church is something called the catechism. It's a list of beliefs um, stated in the form of question and answer, and it's taught to new believers and little children, and it's a very um, intricate part of, of worship in the Presbyterian church. Um, but as far as liturgy, that would be unique to the individual church. Um, in the Lutheran Church, liturgy is optional. That means like printed prayers and things you say and scriptures that you're supposed to read, etc. on a given day or Sunday. Then for the Anglican and Episcopal Church, there is a common liturgy. It's very formal, but individual churches are changing that. So you may find, may come across individual Anglican or Episcopalian churches where um, they are branching away from that very formal high church liturgy to something a little bit more um, relatable or casual to sort of adjust to the times, I guess. And then, of course, in the Roman Catholic Church, you have a common liturgy. It's often in Latin, which I find interesting. If the congregation doesn't know Latin, they don't really know what's being said, but it's still uh, very often in Latin. Individuals are not encouraged to read the Bible for themselves. The catechism for children and new believers is in place uh, similarly to the Presbyterian Church. They have a, a set of beliefs that they have to um, say back and forth. It's kind of like a question and answer thing that the kids memorize or new believers also. So, those are the five big differences among all of the Christian denominations. Baptism, security of the believer, the work of the Holy Spirit, the organizational structure of the church, and the forms of worship or liturgy um, in, in the church, for example, on Sunday morning. So, I want to give you some scripture verses. And I'm not going to deny that I have bias in these areas because I, again, believe that doctrine is very important for a believer. We should know what the Bible teaches and why we believe what we believe, why we do what we do in church. And so um, I'm going to go through these five things and talk about um, what I believe Scripture teaches. I'm going to give you three or four or five scriptures for each category, and I encourage you to look them up for yourself. So let's start with baptism. I believe, Anchor Bible Church believes, that baptism is to be by immersion. 
and that it is an outward physical action of something that has already happened in your heart inwardly and spiritually that baptism does not save you that it is simply um, an outward act and an outward symbol of what God has already done in your heart and here are some scripture references to look up Matthew chapter 28 verses 19 and 20 Matthew 28 19 and 20 then Acts chapter 8 verses 36 through 39 and then a really key verse in this one and again if you have heard Barry preach ever he often says you interpret scripture with scripture you don't take one scripture verse and pull it out and use it in isolation you compare scriptures with each other you look at the context always so these scriptures I'm giving you you need to look up more than what I'm giving you but this one is a key verse that is used um, at least um, among independent churches independent Bible churches like ours or Baptist churches Romans chapter 6 verse 4 and this is the one that talks about being buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Um, it's the reason we immerse is because it symbolizes Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So that's Romans chapter 6, verse 4. All right, so those are three verses for water baptism and what baptism means. The next is the security of the believer. Um, and I believe, Anchor Bible Church believes, we believe from Scripture, that once you are saved, you are always saved. I also believe that only God knows our hearts. And so when I see, it just grieves me. It makes me so sad when I see someone who was a big deal in the Christian world, a musician or an author, who completely turns their back on God. Um, I spent some time on the mission field in Japan and there was a Southern Baptist missionary there that um, I, I was affiliated with or associated with. I was not there as a Southern Baptist missionary, but um, he was a big deal on the mission field. And then all of a sudden, he decided he didn't believe anything anymore. And he left the mission field, left the faith, left the church. And what a heartbreaking story. What How heartbreaking for his family, who just, his wife. Um, so <clears throat> anyway... For the security of the believer, um, I believe once saved, always saved, but only God knows your heart. Only He can know if you were saved in the first place. And here's some verses for that. John chapter 10, verses 28 through 29. John chapter 10, 28 through 29. Next, John three sixteen, And next, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Ephesians 2, verses 5 through 9. I really encourage you to look those up and find others. Those are just some good key ones to look up. All right, the third issue of the Holy Spirit and His work in our lives as Christians. I believe, Anchor Bible Church believes, um, that the Holy Spirit indwells us permanently at the moment of conversion. Now, the filling, when you say be filled with the Spirit, or I want to be filled with the Spirit. The feeling is God having more of me, not my having more of Him. That's a very important uh, point when you're talking with someone who maybe believes that uh, the filling of the Holy Spirit or the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a second work. Here are some verses for that. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. Ephesians 1, verses 12 to 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 
verses 19 and 20. Again, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. And then 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13. The fourth category we talked about, church organization. In Scripture, you see pastors, bishops, elders, and deacons. You see all of those words in the New Testament Scriptures. Pastors, bishops, elders, and deacons. All other structures are man-made. They're not necessarily in Scripture, but that doesn't mean they're necessarily bad. Um, here are some Scriptures. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Philippians 1, 1. Then Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Ephesians 4, 11. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. Now here's a key one. Um, this one's interesting to me. Um, if you look at the early church, you look at the book of Acts, look at chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. It indicates specifically that there was a headquarters for the early church. They had a place that was kind of their central office, so to speak. Um, it was the place from which they sent missionaries and laid hands on new pastors, etc. So there was um, some organization in the early church. So I don't mean to make it sound as if organization is a bad thing. Um, we just need to understand that um, the early church is a model per se, but uh, most of the structures that you see in different denominations today are, are man-made beyond the position of pastor, bishop, elder, or deacon. Um, another selection in the book of Acts, or several more to look up in the book of Acts, would be chapter 8, verse 14, chapter 9, verse 26, and chapter 11, verse 22. Other references in the book of Acts to the idea that there was some organization in the early church. All right, let's look at the fourth and final category, and that is the category of worship. These are the things you see specifically in Scripture when you talk about worship, corporate worship. It should glorify God first and foremost. It should teach the Word. Teaching of the Word must happen in corporate worship, or there's possibly something wrong with that picture. We are to avoid vain repetition. We are to do things decently and in order. Worship should include music. It should include prayer. And it should include fellowship. And here are some verses. Again, some from the book of Acts and then additional ones as well. So you have Acts 2.42, which I read in the last uh, session we had together. Then you have Acts chapter 20, verses 7 through 9. And then you have the book of Matthew Verse uh, chapter six, verse seven, Matthew six, seven, first Corinthians fourteen forty, first Corinthians fourteen forty, and then Colossians three sixteen. Colossians 3.16. Um, this is not an exhaustive list of verses that go with um, the categories that we discussed, but I, these are key verses, and I hope you'll spend some time looking at them. So uh, to wrap things up, I want to revisit 
the idea of a cult, which is a group of people that are gathered around a specific person or person's interpretation of the Bible. That's from Dr. Walter Martin in The Kingdom of the Cults. Um, that's not the dictionary definition of cult, but from a Christian perspective, that is the, diction, the defini- definition of cult. So based on our talk today in this podcast, we need to revisit the idea of a cult and Unfortunately, and I hate to be so specific, but and this is important to say as we wrap up this study on worldviews and cults and denominations, that those who are Jehovah's Witnesses, those who are Mormons, and those who are Christian scientists cannot call themselves Christians. And I may have said this in an earlier podcast when we talked about cults, but Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, and Christian scientists do not believe the foundational things that you must believe to truly be a Christian. And so if they come to your door, if you see them out and about and they claim to be Christians, you talk to them about Jesus and you you can just stay there and, and that alone will show you that they are not Christians. They need to be placed under the umbrella of new spirituality. They fit the, the des- description of those who fall under that worldview of new spirituality. Three more we need to talk about very quickly in in closing. As I've mentioned with Catholicism, if you look at the breakdown of beliefs and you compare them to these other denominations, technically the Roman Catholic Church doesn't fit and doesn't match up with the foundational doctrines of Christianity because it is a works-based salvation. They believe you have to be a member of their church and you have to do the seven sacraments to be saved. And that is not biblical. It is simply not biblical. I have well-meaning brothers and sisters in Christ who are Catholic and who have trusted Christ as their Savior. And my belief is that as they grow in their faith, they will look around just as Martin Luther did. They will look around and go, oh, wait, I'm not supposed to pray to Mary. She can't hear me. I'm not supposed to confess my sins to the priest. I need to confess them straight to the Lord and ask forgiveness. I don't have to do these things to be saved. Jesus Christ's blood alone saves me from my sin. And I believe as they grow in their faith, they will eventually leave the Catholic Church and find a church where there is um, where the Bible is being taught correctly. Um, I know there are cases where there's a lot of pressure from family and upbringing to stay in the Catholic Church, and and it it may be that that's why they stay as long as they do sometimes, but um, I don't believe you can technically put Catholicism under the umbrella of Christianity because Catholicism is a works-based salvation and Biblical Christianity says that it's it's Jesus' blood alone that saves us from our sins. Um, Judaism is like a partial a partial faith. They've missed out on the fact that Jesus is their Messiah. And in this church age in which we live, a Jew must come to know Christ as his or her Savior to be saved. Otherwise, they are, they are not of God and they don't get to go to heaven when they die. So Judaism is a, a partial belief, uh, a half-truth. Um, I have it under the umbrella of Christianity because they're almost there if they trust Jesus as their Messiah. And the Church of Christ, which I haven't had a lot of time to get into, um, is technically not a faith-based belief system either. It is a works-based faith. So it cannot really fit the criteria that you must have to 
to be a Christian. In other words, they're not trusting Christ alone to save them from their sins. So in closing, the purpose of all of this study, the 13 or 14 sessions we've had together, is to equip the saints, to equip you as a believer, to dig in the word for yourself, to understand what other people believe, to recognize false doctrine when you hear it, and ultimately to be able to share your faith with others in a way that they can understand it and come to know Christ as their Savior. So in this last session, thank you for listening. Hopefully you have heard all of the podcasts and you can put all the pieces together. And I pray that God will bless you and make you a blessing to others. Thank you for listening.